0: Let me get you, if you would please, to open the Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We've been doing this for um, several weeks and uh, we're continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, which was a book several of you mentioned you would like to study. And I think it's turned out to be a, a very, very helpful, timely book to look at. Uh, This morning we're going to look at verses, chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, the end of this chapter. If you would please stand. This is Paul writing to the church that he loved in Ephesus. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you'd be pleased to send your sovereign Spirit upon us, that you would pry open our cold, resistant hearts, and give us grace, Father, by your Spirit, that we might hear your word this morning, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I've mentioned several times that I'm going to be taking Greek uh, this semester at Reformed Seminary, and actually, tomorrow is the first day of class. Uh, I am more than a little anxious about it. I'm excited, but I'm also conscious that at Reformed Seminary Dallas, Greek 101 is one of the most important classes. It's uh, known as particularly demanding. And uh, so I'm, I'm sort of uh, poised to launch in. I, Colton, are you going to be in that class? Colton and I will be in this class. The difference between the two of us is he's getting a grade, I'm auditing. So uh, he'll be getting a grade. Pray for Colton, uh, taking this very demanding class with one of the world's great New Testament scholars, a man named Greg Beale, a wonderful teacher, a wonderful uh, scholar. And I'm looking forward to learning Greek 101 from him. Uh, I have my book here, which I was given by my very dear friend, Cindy Thomas. And Cindy wanted me to tell everyone in the service today, she did not take this class. Uh, She had the book. Someone gave her the book thinking she might take the class. But don't go to Cindy with your Greek questions. Uh, a few of you have already done that, and she's had to tell you that she has the book but didn't take the class. Uh, but thank you, Cindy, for giving me this book. Uh, it's the—it's interestingly the same textbook I used in seminary 35 years ago. Same textbook. It's uh, New Testament Greek for Beginners by uh, great, uh, Gresham Machen, a great uh, uh, churchman, a Presbyterian who. Uh, helped found Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and they're still using his book uh, decades and decades later, and I'm looking forward to digging into it. Uh, yes, uh, language is a very important thing to study. If you're going to really understand the New Testament, obviously you have to come to terms with uh, Greek. It was uh, written down for us in Greek. There are parts of it which were maybe originally spoken in Aramaic, but it was written down for us, all of it, in Greek. And so if you're really going to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the language of the New Testament. And that's why I'm taking the class again after having taken it uh, many, many, many moons ago. Actually, understanding language is a very important part if you're going to understand lots of things. Uh, lots of fields of work, fields of study have special languages. Uh, if you went to law school, you learned a little bit of Latin. Uh, you learned a whole lot of common law from English courts across the seas. Uh, you learn different terminology. If you go to medical school, you'll learn lots of language. Um, well, I want to suggest to you that Christianity has a language. And if we're going to really understand Christianity, if we're really going to live out the Christian life, it's very important that we understand Christian language. So I've called this morning's sermon Christian 101 because we want to learn the language of Christianity. And I I don't really mean things like verbs and nouns and adjectives and adverbs. I, I mean something more fundamental, something deeper that actually transcends verbs and nouns and adverbs and adjectives. That can actually transcend the ordinary ways of language that are bigger and deeper and more important. And that's what we're going to think about today as Paul talks to the church in Ephesus about Christian 101. Now there are lots of reasons this could have been on Paul's mind. Uh, I think it's universally important. It's it's true pretty much everywhere, but I think it may have had some special application in Ephesus. Let me get you to look back in the Bible. We've looked at this chapter before, but it's really interesting to read the book of Ephesians uh, in light of Acts chapter 19. Uh, Acts chapter nineteen records Paul's visit to Ephesus when he first went there to the church to help plant to uh, Ephesus to help plant the church there, and we read all about his his making his way to this great city. It's one of the great cities of the of the day, uh, a very important city in government and politics and culture, commerce. And if you look uh, at verse uh, twenty one. You read about Paul's very first days in Ephesus. Uh, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's making his way towards Rome, uh, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. Ephesus was in Asia. And notice what it says in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, he's here in Ephesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not God's. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Uh, Paul is encountering the resistance of this man uh, Demetrius. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged, And were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater, now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had even come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Two hours! Ephesus knew a little bit about language and confusion in language, and and the the freak show that can sometimes result when human beings start communicating. When we cart when we start using language, well, that experience had been not that far previous to Paul's letter to the church there in Ephesus. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 flip back to Ephesians 4 but keep that scenario in mind that was a glimpse into the life of Ephesus and how they used language I want to bring you uh, several points one thing I want to point out to you I I promise you I'm not going to do this every Sunday okay do not worry I'm not going to do this every Sunday but I've been thinking a lot about Greek so if you look on page 8 At the very bottom, you'll notice, because we had space in this morning's bulletin, as we have for the last few weeks, I printed out for you Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, in New Testament Greek. This is Koine Greek. It was Marketplace Greek. And I just want to point out a few things to you, and this is why it's really helpful to understand language. Uh, if you look at the very last word in the Greek passage there from Ephesians 4 25 verses 32, 25 to 32, look at the very last word. It says human. Now all of you from the deep south, get ready to be affirmed. Do you know what human means? Y'all. Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> they spoke really good language in Koine Greek, and they had a word. For you, that was plural. It wasn't y'all exactly. It was human, but it meant y'all, you plural. And uh, it shows up in this passage. But if you back up to verse 25, and you look at the one, two, three, four, fifth word, that's la laete, that is a verb in the um, imperative voice, present tense, second person plural. So here, they didn't have to say y'all. Y'all is actually built into the word, and that's very often the way it worked in Greek. They didn't always have to use the y'all unless they wanted to stress the y'all. So uh, when you see a word like "lete," uh, a Greek reader would know that meant y'all. He was, he was saying something to the group as a plural, you plural. Enough Greek for this morning. I want to now turn, to you, turn with you to think about what Paul wanted to say to this group, the, the you plural that he was talking to. He wanted to talk to them, as he does throughout this short passage, about the Christian language, how Christians communicate. I'm going to circle back around and show you why I think this is a particularly timely word for us today. But look where he starts out. Flip up to the ESV translation in the Bible or in the bulletin, he says, Therefore, this is verse 25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Um, let each one of you speak. That's la laity. La laete means let you speak. Speak the truth. Or let you speak. Uh, let you speak. And the the plurals built in. Let you plural speak. He's telling them to do something. It's an imperative. Uh, he uses several imperatives in this section. He's telling them something they should do about their language. And it begins with this first aspect of the Christian language. That it is to be the truth. We're to speak the truth. I mean that really almost you'd think would go without saying. Christians should be truthful people. We should speak the truth. We should know the truth and we should speak the truth with our neighbors, that is with the people all around us. Doesn't mean literally the people who necessarily live in the house right around us. It will include them. But it means the the city, Ephesus, the whole city. The, the, the city that turned out in mass to yell at Paul and scream lies and untruths at Paul, uh, both in terms of understanding his theological message, but also in terms of just understanding him. He, he had literally not done some of the things they falsely accused him of doing. They were not speaking the truth, either theologically or just literally in terms of what he would said and done. They were not speaking the truth. But Christian language, Christians 101, begins with the imperative that you and I are to speak truth. What we say to each other is to be grounded both in the truth of what we know from the Bible about Christ and about the Christian life, and it's also to be grounded in the truth of reality, the the things we know to be true. We are not to lie about each other. We're not to lie to each other we're to speak truth. And that's really worth underscoring. Our interactions together should be based on truth as we speak to one another. As he says, because we're members of one another. Here in the church especially, we're we're members of one another. We're part of the body of Christ and all of our communicating to each other should be based on truth. So there's no place for mean rumors or distortions there's there's no place for twisting words and and saying putting words in people's mouths that they never said or believed we're to speak the truth and that's that's really the first and in some ways the most important thing that what we say is to be true but it doesn't stop there christian 101 does not stop there it begins there And we underscore that. Let's be clear. But it doesn't end there. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 26. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, it's interesting. There's another imperative here. Paul actually says to the church, Be angry. That's interesting. Be angry. Why? What do you mean, be angry? Well, what you're angry about is is very important. Paul is saying that, that we're to know the truth and we're to engage the truth and we're actually to be angered by the lies and the distortions of the devil. We're actually supposed to respond as Jesus did with sincere emotion, anger even, when we see distortions and lies sing a song here at Metro Chris quite often about about, uh, hating sin, hating the captor, but loving the captive, hating the captor, hating the devil, being angered by the enslavement of those around us. You know, I wonder if we take seriously the spiritual reality in which we live Are we actually angered by the work of the devil? Do we really care about other people who are lost in false religion or no religion, who are wandering aimlessly, heading towards judgment? Does that matter to us? Paul said to the Ephesians, they should should be angry about that. But he says, be angry and do not sin. It's, it doesn't say, but do not sin. I think I'd have used the conjunction but. He uses the conjunction and. In other words, there be angry, and as you are angry, as you are engaging the reality of what the devil is doing in the world around us, do not sin. So turns out there's there's anger that is sin. We know a lot about that. That's what we actually read about. In Acts chapter 19. A lot of sinful anger there. A lot of untruth there. A lot of confusion and clamor. And awful awful things. We've all experienced that. We know what sinful anger looks like. Well Paul says there's such a thing as sinless anger. There's Christ like anger. There's, There's an anger that moves us to do something about it. But to do it in a Christ like way. We're to be angry and not sin. Not letting the sun go down on our anger. That's, that's an interesting way to put it. We're to be angry. Intensely angry. To care deeply. To be moved by the situation. And to put it to bed. To enter into it. Engage with it. Take it seriously. And then to put it to bed. To consciously, deliberately not let the sun go down on it. That's just a metaphorical way of saying not letting it take control of us, not letting it dominate us, not letting it consume us. Don't let the sun go down on that anger and give no opportunity, he says, to the devil. So, Christian 101, speak the truth. Christian 101, do not sin and be angry. verse 28 he changes to another topic he says let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need now I've read this passage many times before and even this week as I was getting ready for this morning it it struck me that it feels like Paul's sort of switching gears he's talking about language 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 he's going to go on to talk about language 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 but here suddenly he's talking about thieves not stealing did he have a brain hiccup like i often do and just sort of shift gears that would be understandable if he did but i want to suggest he's not really switching gears but one thing paul understands the close connection between our language and what we do Because, brothers and sisters, we will wind up doing what we say. One way or the other. We'll we'll, we'll wind up following. So if we speak hatefully and angrily, guess what? We're going to wind up behaving in a way that's hateful and angry. And if we speak dishonestly, if we say things that are not true to enrich ourselves, if we say those things, we will wind up being those things. Now, I know this room is full of people who work in offices and businesses for a living. You know what it's like to be tempted to speak in a way that enriches yourself. You know what it's like to have the subtle temptation to say things that, well, well, maybe it's not exactly true, sort of true, maybe. A case can be made, but we know down deep that's... That's not really true. And if someone told me that, I would know it wasn't true. I think Paul's here talking to someone like Demetrius, for instance, back in Ephesus, stirring up the crowd. He made his living making these little trinkets. Made these little trinkets, and he would enriched himself, apparently gotten pretty wealthy by it. And he was speaking to a room full of people who did the same thing. Well, I can guarantee you Demetrius in his life had learned one way or the other that that little trinket had no power little trinket it had no power you can't you can't expect this trinket to hear your prayers and answer your prayers and bless you in times of need and desperation and you don't have to try praying to a trinket for long to realize trinkets don't answer prayers Demetrius knew that, and yet here he was, stirring up a room full of people. Paul's saying, "Can you believe it? Paul's saying that God's made with hands aren't gods. duh I mean the roman philo- the Greek philosophers had known that for a long time it was, it was a well-known fact that that these trinkets they didn't have power in themselves, and yet that's how Demetrius made his living. You see the temptation to Use dishonest language and how our behaviors get swept along by our words. And I think he's making a nod at those things. I do think he literally means don't steal. But I think he's actually saying more than don't steal. He's saying don't steal with your words. The way he puts it is, is, is very different. Rather labor doing honest work with your own hands. Do, do honest work. Do your work in an honest way, whatever it is. If you enjoy sales and you're a salesperson, do it in an honest way. And he ties it to an interesting stewardship point so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Ties the use of language, interestingly, into this idea of of sharing with other people. Because honest language, honest behavior, in Christ will lead us to sharing with others. That's what true honesty will do. It will sh- help shape us. And certainly in the Christian life, as we practiced honesty in Christian 101, we'll find ourselves being moved in that direction, away from self to others. He doesn't stop there either. He goes on, look at verse 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting talk. If you look at the NIV translation, they say unwholesome, same idea. Unwholesome talk, ugly talk, coarse language, foul language. It's it's unwholesome and it is in fact corrupting. It is corrupt and it corrupts others. And I can tell you as a young man, I had a whole lot of unwholesome talk in my language. I had a lot of talk that corrupted myself and corrupted other people. And Paul says, don't do that. That's Christian 101. Don't use unwholesome talk. Now, I personally don't believe he's saying we have to be rigid and uptight about language. There's a place for poetry. There's a place for metaphors. There's a place for humor. But unwholesome, corrupting language has no place in the Christian life. Just like dishonest talk will lead to dishonest behavior, corrupt, unwholesome speech will lead to corrupt, unwholesome behavior. And we should all be on a course of seeking to use language that actually doesn't corrupt, but builds up. It's not unwholesome, but it's actually wholesome. You know, I think what maybe impacted me more than anything else in that regard was when Leslie and I started having kids. And we had little ones around us. <laughs> you can't have little ones around you and in good conscience with Christian wisdom use foul, coarse language. And if you do, guess what? You'll hear it back from them. You'll hear it back from them. Why? Because language impacts. It corrupts. If our little ones hear us using foul language, if they hear us taking the the Lord's name in vain regularly, what will that say about our prayers? How will that shape the way they view our calling out on the name of the Lord if we use his name as an expletive? Kids notice these things. We quit, quit thinking about it sometimes. But they notice it. You can't, in the same limited range of communication, call out to God in prayer and turn around and use his name as a filthy expletive. Can't do that. It's unwholesome. It's corrupting. It'll destroy you, it'll destroy those around you. So Paul says, no corrupt language. He goes on, uh, just as as he wraps up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul underscores the fact that the way you and I speak has an effect on the Holy Spirit in our lives. Can you imagine that, that the way I speak, whether it's angry and and bitter, or coarse or untrue, that that language, that language actually grieves the Lord. He says, don't do that. Do not let... Do not grieve the holy another imperative do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption the same spirit that dwells in us that makes christ real to us and, and opens our hearts and minds to the, to the lord jesus that same spirit is grieved when our language does not reflect the sealing of our redemption So, Paul talks a lot about the Christian language. He gives us some very specific examples and things we should do. He also gives us some examples of what not to do. Uh, Look, if you would, uh, at uh, verse 31. In in one verse, just one verse, he's given us all these verses of Christian language. In one verse, he's going to give us non-Christian language. Again, another imperative. Let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, slander, and malice be put away from you. Do you hear that Acts 19 context? Clamor, slander, lies, untruths, bitterness, wrath, sinful anger. That horrible picture of communication apart from the Lord, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, apart from the body of Christ. That's non-Christian language. And it's a a horrible thing to hear. We read about it in Acts 19. But brothers and sisters, doesn't that sound a lot like our culture? Doesn't that sound a lot like the way we communicate to each other all too often? That's the way a lot of us talk. I mean, even if we've learned to come into this room and behave ourselves, when we go to work, or we go to school, or we sign on to Facebook or Twitter, all of a sudden, all that goes out the window all too often. And we find ourselves using language exactly like the non-Christian. Saying hateful things, untrue things, ugly things, mean-spirited things, malicious things. I've had several conversations this week about the context of communication in the world where we live and the role of Christians in it. Paul Hargrove, one of our elders, shared with me a book that he and E.J. Abood had read called uh, Winsome Conviction by Tim Mueloff. I've not read it, but I'm I'm intending to. It's, It's a book that describes how Christians should communicate how Christians should use our language in talking to other Christians and into the world. That we're, we're to repent of the ugliness of communication in the world. That is not to characterize our speech, our way of communicating. That is not how it's done. For Paul, it wound up being a transformational thought. Because Paul confided in me that he found himself not too long ago occasionally engaging the way the world engaged. And I think Judy called him on it a couple of times. <laughs> she just covered her face. I think that might be true. And, and uh, Paul said, okay, I'm going to think about this and pray about this. And he read a book and compared it to the scriptures and, and it changed his life. Changed his life. Because when we change our language, It will change our life. As we change our language to reflect more the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If we really do that and think about that and pray about that. It will affect the way we do everything else. So we're not to behave. We're not to speak like the non-Christians around us. Yes we can have spirited discussions. There is a place for godly anger. Passion. But. In that, there is no place for maliciousness, slander, malice, and all the ugly things that Paul describes, and which he himself had seen, and which we have seen too. Let me wrap up with how Paul wraps up, and this has to do with what Christianity sounds like. You know, um, I had a friend who heard I was about to take Greek 101, and he, he told me uh, he needed help with his pronunciation. <laughs> I said, uh, I've got a confession to make. I took Greek 35 years ago. Do not trust my pronunciation of Greek, all right? I'm learning. I'm interested in trying to get better. I'm making tiny baby steps. But don't trust me for pronunciation or the details of the Greek language. So what does Christianity sound like? you know paul is a good example uh, paul learned about language he's an example but the example paul gives what he thinks the christian language is to sound like and what a christian life is to be like he says in verse 32 be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you What does Christianity sound like? It sounds like God in Christ. What does it look like? It looks like God in Christ, God who forgives us. I mean, you know, every Sunday we have a confession of sin at Metacrest. Every single Sunday, and there's a good reason for that. It's it's not just a liturgical window dressing. We we confess our sins because we sin. And every Sunday we sin and we confess that sin to the Lord, and He in Christ forgives us. He forgives us past and present and future. Uh, Josh just led us a moment ago through the confession of sin, and He reminded us afterwards uh, that we could find courage and hope, that we could find confidence. Hear the good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Know that if you're a believer in Jesus, God embraces you, forgives you, and strengthens you to live a renewed life. Well, if God has forgiven me and God has forgiven you, then shouldn't we forgive other people? Shouldn't our language demonstrate forgiveness and compassion, tender-heartedness? Paul thought it should. That's what he said it looked like. You want to know what Christian language sounds like, what Christian living looks like? It looks like God in Christ. Uh, one final Greek reference. The word translated forgiving here. Uh, it certainly includes the idea of forgiveness, but it's actually much broader. If you look on page 8 in the bulletin, it's highlighted charis charis. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know charis refers to grace. And he uses the same word, uh, ex charis sato, at the end of the verse, charis. Wrapped up in this idea of forgiveness is not only forgiveness, but but actually graciousness. Yes, grace to forgive, but grace to love, grace to embrace, grace to care about people. That's what Christian language sounds like. That's what Christian living looks like. And we, We find it by looking to Christ. God's work in and through Jesus Christ. That is our model. That is our goal. That is our hope. So we're all learning to speak Christian. We're all learning to live the Christian life. Let us do so by looking to Jesus and learning to speak as he spoke and as he speaks still. And that, brothers and sisters, will transform us It will help us to become that magnetic community of people who know and love each other and speak kindly to each other, speak compassionately to each other. And that community God then uses to bring many people out of the clamor into the joy of life with Christ.